This week, Judge Montali approves PG&E debtors TCC subro RSAs. Clover and High Ridge file for Chapter 11. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm legal analyst Alex Brosman. Later, Reorg's legal reporting and financial teams will discuss pensions, particularly as they relate to retiree benefit claims before and after Chapter 11 filing. The team discusses McClatchy, Sears, Dean Foods, and Murray Energy. It's Sunday, December 22nd. Welcome to what will be our last podcast of the decade. After a lengthy hearing last week, Judge Dennis Montali indicated that he will approve the proposed restructuring support agreements between the PG&E debtors and both the Official Committee of Tort Claimants, or TCC, and the Ad Hoc Subrogation Group. These two groups collectively constitute the majority of the debtors' wildfire-related claims. In doing so, the judge overruled objections from the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors and the ad hoc group of senior unsecured note holders regarding, among other things, the release and, quote, lockup provisions in the RSAs. At the same time, Judge Montali's decision does not resolve Governor Gavin Newsom's issues with the amended plan. Counsel for the governor also indicated at the hearing that the ad hoc group's competing plan would likewise not pass muster under AB 1054. In light of Judge Montali's RSA decision, the TCC dismissed, without prejudice, its made-whole doctrine-focused adversary proceeding against the ad hoc group of subrogation claimants. The TCC's complaint was originally filed on November 8th, arguing that, under the California made-whole rule, subrogation claimants may not receive any distribution from the debtors' estates until every element of each wildfire victim's claims, quote, are paid in full via a direct payment of cash and or securities to the wildfire claimants themselves. In the district court, after reports of the debtor's $13.5 billion settlement with the TCC came to his attention, Judge James Donato, who oversees the claims estimation process, said, quote, I don't think there's anything left here to do. Referencing the settlement, Donato stated that the parties, quote, have effectively estimated the loss at $13.5 billion, thus leaving the estimations process without a purpose. At the California Public Utilities Commission, pg announced a settlement with the Safety Enforcement Division over its Order Instituting Investigation, or OII, related to the 2017 wildfires in Northern California and the 2018 campfire. The settlement proposes that pg pay $50 million for shareholder-funded system enhancements, specifically on the company's electric transmission and distribution system, and that the debtors not seek customer rate recovery associated with certain wildfire-related costs in the amount of $1.625 billion. The settlement is subject to approval by the full CPUC. Clover Technologies Group, a Hoffman Estates, Illinois-based remanufacturer of printer cartridges and mobile phones, and several affiliates filed petitions for Chapter 11 last week. Their pre-petition capital structure consists of about $644 million in term loans and around 1.7 million shares, of which around 68% is held by Golden Gate Capital and about 21% by current and former management. The debtors filed a a prepackaged plan of reorganization supported by about 70% of the debtors' term loan lenders and the holders of about 72.8% of the equity. Emphasizing the goal of, quote, moving swiftly, the debtors propose a confirmation hearing on January 21. 
Under the plan, the debtors will equitize all but $80 million of Clover's term loans for 100% of the organized equity. Additionally, Clover's May 2020 term loan maturity will be extended by nearly four years. Existing equity holders will receive warrants for 5% of the reorganized equity, subject to dilution from a management incentive plan. General unsecured claims would, quote, ride through the Chapter 11 cases. The company attributed the bankruptcy filing to depressed demand for printers and associated supplies, increased competition from foreign vendors and remanufacturers, and for the wireless segment, restrictive OEM policies insisting on high-quality standards, which increased pressure throughout the supply chain and led to unpredictable structural changes in the wireless device market that affected the wireless business's ability to provide its remanufacturing services at efficient margins. The debtors say that they will have the necessary liquidity to fund the Chapter 11 cases on account of the consenting term loan lenders' consent to the debtors' continued use of cash collateral. Additionally, the debtors and the consenting lenders have agreed to the form of new take-back paper term loans and an exit financing facility process to ensure the debtors have sufficient liquidity to operate the business upon emergence from Chapter 11. High Ridge Brands, a Stamford, Connecticut-based, independent, branded personal care company, filed for Chapter 11 last week in the District of Delaware. The company, which boasts brands such as Dr. Fresh and Zest, skipped an $11 million interest payment in September. The filing came on the eve of the expiration of an associated forbearance from First Lien Lenders. The debtors are seeking a Section 363 sale and are, quote, currently engaged in active discussions with interested bidders, according to a press release. The company attributes its financial condition to, quote, momentous shifts in the retail industry stemming from, quote, changing demographics and consumer tastes. This evolving retail landscape has led to lower price points for hair and skincare products, the debtors say. Given that a large portion of High Ridge's legacy hair and skin products come from dollar stores, where they note it is difficult to pass along inflationary input costs to consumers, the company was, quote, forced to pivot away from its low-cost, volume-based business structure. These efforts to pivot required increased marketing expenses and were hampered by difficulties with suppliers, including higher prices and insufficient production, spurring liquidity constraints. The company cut back on marketing expenses in order to meet debt service obligations, resulting in depressed sales. Debtors reported a cash balance of $13 million as of filing and disclosed that an existing secured lender group has committed to providing $40 million in dip financing consisting of $20 million of new money and a $20 million roll-up of pre-petition first lien debt. The dip milestones contemplate an auction date in early February. On the island of Puerto Rico, on Thursday, the chairman of a key Commonwealth House of Representatives committee told REORG that a majority of lawmakers would vote against legislation to execute the proposed PREPA RSA if it increases rates. The development comes among continuous delays in the proposed P3 transactions at PREPA and other government entities. Puerto Rico House Economic Development Chairman Victor Perez said in the interview at his Capitol office this week that the, quote, vast majority of his colleagues in the lower chamber, including House Speaker Carlos Johnny Mendez, quote, share my concerns in position and would vote against any PREPA restructuring legislation that contemplates a rate hike for consumers. I can't support with my vote any accord that includes a rate hike, Perez said, noting that constituents in parts of his San Juan district continue to be plagued by almost daily power outages. 
On Wednesday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit entered an opinion affirming Judge Laura Taylor Swain's August 7, 2018 ruling, dismissing the Commonwealth's challenges to the Permisa Oversight Board's ability to impose recommendations rejected by the governor under a certified fiscal plan and to bar, quote, reprogramming of funds. The appeal arose from a budget-related adversary proceeding filed in the Title III court by then-Governor Ricardo Rosseo and Afaf against the Promesa Oversight Board. After hearing oral argument on the issue on July 25th, the First Circuit stated in its opinion that, quote, the potential use by the government of so-called reprogrammed funds is apparently a subject of continuing dispute, and its resolution now will likely assist the district court in assessing other existing and future disputes regarding the relationship between the board and the governor. And on Monday, Governor Wanda Vasquez announced that she will run to be the new Progressive Party gubernatorial candidate next year, hours after a press conference during which she signed into law two bills opposed by the Permisa Oversight Board that restore public employee vacation and sick benefits and put in motion a 90-day traffic fine amnesty with discounts for settling traffic fine debts. The governor, in a special message broadcast on social media and YouTube, touted such achievements as improved relations with the federal government and the Oversight Board, guaranteeing the Christmas bonus for public workers and winning congressional commitment to provide Puerto Rico with $12 billion in Medicaid funding over the next four years. Former resident commissioner Pedro Pierluisi has already announced that he will also seek to be the NPP gubernatorial candidate next year. Vasquez, a former justice secretary, became governor after the resignation of former Governor Ricardo Rosseo in the face of massive protests over a group chat scandal and corruption arrests. Vasquez had initially said she would finish out the governing term and not seek re-election. A new spending agreement approved by the U.S. Congress to avoid a federal government shutdown includes up to $5.7 billion of Medicaid funding over the next two years, at a 76% Federal Medical Assistance Percentage, or FMAP, for Puerto Rico and an additional $252 million for the U.S. Virgin Islands, at an 83% FMAP over the same period. The new Medicaid agreement for the territories replaces a previous four-year agreement between the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate that would have provided $12 billion over four years for Puerto Rico. Other top stories last week were California resources, one-and-a-quarter lien, one-and-a-half lien lenders organize, take banker pitches in preparation for liability management discussions. In separate filings on Purdue Bankruptcy Docket, Alex Partners and PJT disclose Mallinckrodt engagements. Third Circuit affirms District Court's Millennium Health third-party releases decision, cites exceptional facts of case. And now, over to Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thanks, Alex, and good morning to you dedicated listeners who are dialing in, so to speak, for the last podcast, what's been a most interesting year. And it's going to be the shortest for me at any rate, because Monday, December 23rd, there's nothing on the calendar. For those of y'all who drew the short straw, it's law of the nerf football around the trading floor time. It's a species of endeavor that may well recommend itself to Tuesday, December 24th, when stock and bond markets close early. And December 25th is, of course, Christmas, at least for those who follow the Gregorian calendar. Gift to civilization in 1582 from Pope Gregory XIII 
It allegedly fine-tunes the exact day length of the solar year. A lot of the actual calculating was done by a German Jesuit named Christopher Clavius. Personally speaking, I like the old calendar, the Julian calendar, according to which Christmas is January 7th. Being from the South, I tend to like doing it the way the old folks did it, which reminds me of a joke. How many Southerners does it take to change a light bulb? Two. One to put in the new light bulb and one to argue about how much better the old light bulb was. Anyways, on to Thursday. Again, there's nothing on the calendar. And then we come to Friday where there is something. And who, you're wondering, is actually going to do something, going to drag in from work on Friday, the 27th of December? Well, California, that's who, or what? California being a sort of bottomless cornucopia for those of us with an old-fashioned, meaning somewhat jaundiced and cynical view of human nature and the notion of progress. The historian Christopher Lash wrote a great book on this subject, highly recommended. Anyway, specific gas and electric. Yes, the utility to the stars, Silicon Valley, and Plump Jack Winery, from which no did Oneophile Governor Gavin Newsom will sell you a 1.5 liter bottle of Merlot for $142. Said Merlot has, and this is according to the winery's website, layers of aromatics, black cherry, plum and raspberry, to graham cracker, vanilla, butterscotch, and sweet hickory smoke. These flavors extend the palate, which has a rich and silky entry with bright acidity and firm structure, resulting in great tension balance and persistence on the finish. Well, how about that? Why don't I pick up a case for the next fish fry? Anyways, back to PG&E. On Friday, there's a state court case management conference related to the Tubbs fire in Department 606 in San Francisco. That sounds sinister. Watch where you put your feet on the sidewalk. And that is all from me, Alex. Back to you. Thanks, Jim. Next, here is our group discussion of McClatchy, Sears, Dean Foods, and Murray, with a focus on pension and retiree benefits claims before and after a Chapter 11 filing. I'm Sean Daly, Distressed at Legal Analyst, and today we're bringing you a holiday special double-length podcast to tide you over until the new year on the plethora of pension and employee benefits claims issues that stressed and restructuring companies may face. One theme that's come out of a number of recent discussions internally and with subscribers is that while it's generally acknowledged that the timing and magnitude of legacy benefits liabilities are an important factor into your analysis of a distressed issuer, this is a complex area where many people may not have a good holistic understanding of the full spectrum of issues. This is an area where it's paramount to understand both the law and specific facts of the case in order to handicap the issues accurately because reliance on one or the other alone could lead you to draw an incorrect conclusion. Questions like, what rules do you look to when a stressed issuer has made minimal disclosures about the specific timing of upcoming statutorily mandated minimum pension contributions? What do you do when a company has estimated its pension liabilities at X dollars, but someone else, say a multi-employer pension plan or the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, asserts it's really X plus 20%. What, if anything, changes once a company is in bankruptcy? Our goal today is to hopefully provide more structure for understanding, issue spotting, and analyzing such questions. On this segment, we'll go over the various types of pension and employee benefits liabilities and who may assert claims against a company based on these obligations. Further, we'll provide a basic framework for analysis of pension claim issues including a discussion of a few common fact patterns and strategic considerations. And finally, we'll discuss several current cases where certain of these issues are at play. Financial analyst Anton Gorbanov will be joining me to discuss the McClatchy Company. Legal analyst Kevin Eckhart has a preliminary pensions postmortem on Sears. 
Financial analyst Krishan Suthershana will weigh whether the glass is half empty or half full for Dean Foods unsecured bondholders in light of that company's potential pension liabilities. And financial analyst Mark Gardner will wrap up the episode with the discussion of Murray Energy and patterns from prior coal bankruptcies. But first, some background. I'm going to suggest a rough framework for analysis and use that to introduce some basic concepts for thinking through these issues. So generally, I'm, I'm thinking about things in six steps. One, what obligations does the, the company have? Two, uh, who is entitled to assert claims and uh, who may be liable? Three, uh, taking a, a preliminary view on the amount of these claims. Four, looking at a number of timing concerns because we're, we're dealing with a lot of claims that are contingent until certain triggering uh, events. Five, adding on a process overlay. So, you know, looking at what are the strategic moves that a company can take pre-petition and then once it's in chapter 11, how does, how does that change? And then the final step six, taking a revised estimate on amount based on, uh, you know, the, the timing and, and process considerations. So first off, looking at what obligations the company has. And I, I think there are two related but distinct points here. One, you want to break out the source of each obligation to make payments or uh, otherwise contribute. And two, then itemize the types of potential claims that could arise from each of the obligations. So in, in terms of general buckets of obligations, we'll talk about pension plans, and then just a, a catch-all other. So with pension plans, we're focusing on defined benefit as opposed to defined contribution plans, and then looking at some of the differences between single versus multi-employer plans. A single employer plan, that's where you know, the, the company has uh, you know, committed to make um, benefit payments, and it can be subject to a number of rules and regulations from ERISA, the IRS and the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which we'll talk about a little bit later, comes into the picture. A multi-employer plan a company's obligation to contribute generally stems from uh, a you know, contractual obligation memorialized in a collective bargaining agreement with a union. In terms of the other catch-all bucket, uh, the level of detail on company disclosures varies here sometimes. Other items are just consolidated as, um, quote, other post-employment benefits or OPEB. These could include contractual commitments made by the company or statutory obligations. So, for example, health benefits for coal miners mandated by the Coal Act and the Black Lung Benefits Act. So, once you've identified, okay, what is the obligation here? Are we looking at single employer plan, multi-employer pension plan, um, then you should itemize the types of potential claims. So with pensions, the big picture is what is the underfunded amount? And the amount of underfunding is, is measured as the present value of estimated future benefit liabilities less the fair value of plan assets. The one minor wrinkle here is for a multi-employer pension plan, if you were one of a number of contributing employers, right, it's not, you're not on the hook for 
everything it's it's figuring out what is your relative percentage of the uh, the overall underfunded amount um there are required minimum contributions for single employer plans uh, so that's you know related to the the underfunded amount um, and we'll talk about that that's really more a, a timing issue so we'll get back to that in a minute with multi-employer plans you have this concept of withdrawal liability which is related again to the underfunded amount uh, but is also generally withdrawal is is sort of this we'll get into it a bit more with timing but it's it's designed to be punitive right you you don't want contributing employers to say oh you know forget this we're out um, so you, you try and add in a little bit extra liability. With pensions, you can also get various miscellaneous claims. The PBGC can um, assert certain extra premiums, and there are some priority claims you can get under the bankruptcy code, but those are, are generally smaller than the, uh, the underfunded amount and withdrawal liability amounts. For the catch-all other claims bucket, these are typically unfunded, uh, contrasted with the, the defined benefit um, pension plans. So going on to step number two, who is entitled to assert the claims identified in step one and uh, relatedly against whom may these claims be enforced? So first, who's entitled to assert? Look to the source of the obligation and the governing laws or regulations. Uh, generally, for a pension plan, it's it's going to be the PBGC and or the uh, multi-employer pension plan, the, the plan itself, and the, the plan trustees can assert claims. Um, one example, one of the companies we'll talk about later, Dean Foods, uh, one of their, one of the multi-employer pension plans that they contribute to, as well as the PBGC, both sit on the official committee of unsecured creditors, just to, you know, to talk about their importance. And then the issue of against whom may the claims be enforced. Um, this comes up, you know, controlled group liability is a, is an important concept. So entities with at least 80% common ownership, the, the best way to think about it just generally without getting into the details is, oh, okay, well, it's, it's, it's very broad. It's designed to, um, you know, capture as, as many entities as, as possible. So you want to think about it as just like a very um, broad group of entities that uh, claims could be enforced against within the overall corporate family. Step three, taking a preliminary view on amount. You can look at what the, uh, the company may have said in um, securities filings. You can, if you're in a stage with a, a very stressed issuer that's already talking with the PBGC, or um, sometimes you'll you'll get um, useful information out of multi-employer pension plan annual reports. Uh, you can sort of get a, a rough check on what people have said about oh, this, you know, this is what we think the amount of uh, pension and benefit obligations are. Next, it's important to look at timing. Uh, when does each claim arise? There are sort of two considerations here. One. A lot of the claims we're talking about are contingent until, you know, the the existence of some triggering event that crystallizes the amount, and then two, 
whether you're talking about a company that's out of court or one that is in the post-petition period and is already filed for Chapter 11 is important. On the triggering events for contingent claims, the underfunded amount of a pension, that's an, an estimate of that amount will be periodically disclosed. Uh, again, in SEC filings, great place to look. Uh, you can apply your own preferred actuarial assumptions if you think that the uh, the issuers are, are off base, but it's only triggered upon for a single employer plan, plan termination, which is a process that can either be initiated by the company, a distress termination, or by the PBGC itself, an involuntary termination, which will get back to in a second. This is where it starts to get uh, a little more complex in, in how you analyze these situations. Uh, but um, beyond looking at the underfunded amount, you also want to be able to look at when are future um, minimum required contributions or other payments due. Um, and unmade, or a, a, I should say, a, you know, a, a late or, or not timely minimum required contribution uh, in excess of $1 million can trigger certain rights for the, the PBGC. So that's, that's a particular instance to look out for. So the issue of whether you're in the pre-petition period or in Chapter 11 can help you analyze a number of different questions or issues. Um, for example, claim priority. So looking at, okay, once a claim is no longer contingent, what is its priority? A useful rule of thumb, if you're in the post-petition period, unsecured claim. If you're in the pre-petition period, technically, and this is where, you know, it's, it's helpful to understand the rules, it's helpful to understand the law, but then, you know, is a practical matter, how do these things play out? Pre-petition, the PBGC can assert uh, a statutory lien on uh, an underfunded amount for a plan that has been terminated. So, you know, a second ago, right, I said, oh, plan termination, um, you know, looking at whether it's happening pre or post petition. Well, if you just keep making whatever payments you're required to until the post petition period, you can avoid, you know, the, the issue of, oh, maybe there's this, this lien that could be imposed, which is why you'll see a lot of companies, once they're at the point where it looks like they might have to file, uh, you just, you, you don't terminate pre-petition. Um, but even if the PBGC, and they can also uh, assert a, a lien on, as mentioned a, a minute ago, if you miss more than a million dollars in required minimum contributions at, at the point at which those are due, um, they can also assert this lien. Um, even if the PBGC goes ahead and tries to assert the lien, it is subject to prior uh, properly perfected liens. So is a, is a practical matter. It's not super helpful. Um, so talking about the pre-petition versus the post-petition period is a, is a good segue into step five, the sort of amorphous catch-all process overlay. So looking at if a company is still out of court, what moves are available to it. Uh, there's a, a thing called an IRS waiver of minimum required payments um, that a, a company you can apply to the IRS for, you need to show temporary substantial business hardship. 
So the tension there is between temporary and substantial. A lot of the companies we're talking about today and in the companies where pension claims are big issues, you may have a very substantial problem, but can you show it's temporary? Um, if you're sort of building in a base case, I think it's better to assume that uh, an IRS waiver request um, just won't be granted. They're not likely to be granted. And unfortunately, this is an area where it's also very tough to assess. There's minimal visibility into the process, and the IRS has a, a number of qualitative factors that go into its determination that you can't really say, oh, okay, it's, it's a checklist. I look, um, this is pro, this is con. There are more pros than cons, and, and you can get a good sense for it. So that's one to just sort of be a little bit more conservative about. Um, also out of court, as we just talked about a second ago, uh, PBGC lean looking at the availability and the impact. So the vast majority of pension claims wind up as unsecured claims. We'll get into this a little bit more detail with the discussion of McClatchy. Um, But again, just difference between the law and how the facts typically shake out in this area is, is important. And then once you're in chapter 11, sort of two big issues looking at bankruptcy code sections uh, 1113, which governs the assumption or rejection of collective bargaining agreements, and the analogous 1114, which governs, uh, quote, retiree benefits, which is a, a broadly defined range of, of health benefits. And then the second issue to look at are Section 363 asset sales, which uh, if you're familiar with Section 363, the, uh, you know, the utility or one of the, the things people enjoy is getting, you know, you can sell assets uh, free and clear of um, legacy liabilities. So 11.13 and 11.14, there are a a number of requirements. We'll just get into a a very brief description. Uh, But once a company is in bankruptcy, section 11.13 is the only way that a company may assume or reject a collective bargaining agreement. For our purposes, if you're looking at liability minimization and the, the potential therefore you're obviously talking more about um, rejection or modification of benefits and similar under 1114 uh, and this this actually is a good way to think about collective bargaining agreements as well company files keep making those payments until you get court approval under these sections to um, reduce modify or reject them so the, the process, just very quickly for 1113, the debtor must make a proposal to the authorized representative of a union or other group of employees that would be affected by a change in benefits. Then you have to meet and confer in good faith. And the, the proposal also, there are certain other requirements there. You must have the most complete and reliable information available, available at the time. So there can be some back and forth uh, you know, uh, a union may say, oh, we, you know, you, we haven't gotten the information we need to properly analyze this. And that can, you know, be one way of, of trying to push out the timeline a little bit. So once a debtor actually files a, an application or a, a motion to uh, modify these benefits, there's a, a hearing generally within uh, two to three weeks. Uh, the, the code, and this is all laid out in the, the section of the code, uh, the court should rule within 30 days. These are both subject to sort of, you know, if in the interest of justice, if they need to be longer, they can. And then requirements for the court to approve 
such a you know such a motion or a request from the debtors, they need to find that the proposal that was made was valid and, and sort of hit all the informational requirements. Um, secondly, that the authorized representative quote has refused to accept such proposal without good cause. And third, the balance of the equities must clearly favor rejection. So what are some consequences of these strategic moves? If you want to reject a collective bargaining agreement and or other retiree benefits, or at least preserve that optionality under sections 1113 and 1114, you can show up uh, at the first day hearing and in your first day declaration, you can have a, a very big headline number, you know, oh, if we were to withdraw from this multi-employer pension plan, we could face, you know, X billion dollars of, of potential liability. Like that's, you know, a, showing a larger number helps. Um, and Murray Energy, uh, which we'll discuss later, did that. If if Murray withdraws from the United Mine Workers of America 1974 pension plan, withdrawal liability could top, you know, six and a half billion. Um, and this is something where they've you know, they made last year, I think, approximately $32 million in, in cash contributions. So um, another another point here is that the use of PBGC regulations specifying the actuarial, actuarial assumptions, excuse me, for determining the underfunded amount of a pension plan typically increases the size of the underfunding claim relative to calculations otherwise made by, say, the, you know, the plan sponsor, the company. So is a debtor, that's, you know, that's a claim that maybe you don't want to put a number on right away um, by, by contrast. And then final step, step six, make a revised estimate of the, uh, the amount that you came up with earlier based on, you know, these, these timing considerations. I mean, you're really, you're answering or you're trying to answer questions such as, is this a situation where these liabilities are, are truly burdensome? And do you think the debtors will be able to avail themselves of sections 1113 and 1114? Uh, will a big headline number that I've seen and, and maybe kind of written down on scratch paper, is that going to be reduced to a smaller settlement? Is a PBGC lien a concern for potential value leakage, uh, et cetera? This is just sort of where you, uh, you, know, you, you take stock of the the full research you've done up to that point. With those basics out of the way, let's turn to specific examples from current and a few recent cases. I'm joined now by financial analyst Anton Gorbanov to discuss newspaper publisher the McClatchy Company, which Reorg recently initiated coverage on. Anton, thanks for carving out the time to chat. Could you give us a brief background on McClatchy and its pension-related disclosures? Why are we talking about this company now? Thanks, Sean. So uh, McClatchy, as you said, is a large newspaper publisher. They operate about 30 newsrooms in all over the U.S. They publish a number of large regional newspapers that uh, you probably have heard of, including Miami Herald, uh, Sacramento Bee, Kansas City Star. Uh, obviously, this is not a growing business, uh, uh, to say the least, and it's fairly levered. Um, but their plight is exacerbated by their pretty large and very underfunded pension plan. Um, it's long been a potential long-term problem for them that you know they've long had this uh, big balance sheet deficit uh but it's uh, now turned into a full-blown uh liquidity crisis uh more specifically they have 124 million in estimated minimum contributions due in 2020 uh which the company said they may not be able to fund 
Um, they requested a waiver from the IRS to delay those contributions by three years, uh, which the IRS denied. Uh, so the company engaged advisors uh, to negotiate with the PBGC and its largest debt holder and it warned that may have to file for Chapter 11 uh, as a result. And uh, with regards to PBGC specifically, they said that uh, one of the options that they're talking to them about is a distress termination. Thanks, Anton. Uh, for a little bit of context, the $124 million of estimated minimum required contributions due in 2020, how does that compare to uh, free cash flow over recent periods or, or what's it look like going forward? So uh, the company generates uh, about uh, $110 million of EBITDA. Uh, it has a decent amount of debt, so a lot of that goes towards uh, interest payments. Uh, uh, the free cash flow defined as cash from ops minus CapEx uh, was about uh, $8 million in the uh, LTM period ending uh, September 30th. Uh, and uh, you know they have very little cash on the balance sheet and uh, not a whole lot of rollover capacity. So this is something that, that they cannot fund using just intrinsic sources of liquidity. Great, thanks. Yeah, that's that. Uh, I, I think frames up the uh, the seriousness of of this you know upcoming liability. So what's what's interesting about McClatchy and what I'd like to get a few more comments from you on is the fact that we're talking about all of this pre-petition. Uh, you know, once a company is in Chapter 11, these claims with a few specific and, and more minor uh, in, in magnitude exceptions are all unsecured. But out of court, it's still a little bit more gray. Um, I guess maybe the best way to start first, could you, you know, briefly rehash uh, what a distress termination is? Sure. So uh, distress termination is a procedure that allows a, a pension plan sponsor to basically come to the PBGC, uh, Pension Management Guarantee Corporation, hat in hand, and, and uh, say, look, we, we cannot make these payments. Uh, please take over the plan. Uh, and you know, the big point, uh, as it's relevant to McClatchy, is that this process uh, crystallizes the contingent uh, pension liability uh, for the underfunded amount. And in this case, it would be owed to the PBGC, who will take over the plan. Um, and you know, we should also know that this claim can actually be quite a bit larger than the on-balance sheet funded status uh, of the pension plan because of different actuarial assumptions that the PBGC uses. Uh, we heard from sources that uh, in the case of McClatchy specifically, PBGC may be looking to assert a claim of as much as a billion dollars uh, compared to on-balance sheet pension fund deficit of uh, 500 million and change. Um, now, the, the interesting thing about distress termination and just you know, generally missed payments to the PBGC outside of bankruptcy is that the PBGC is actually entitled to a statutory lien on account of any payments that are owed to it. Um, so this, was, this would include any missed contributions, like that $124 million if they failed to make it. And if uh, that's the route the company chooses, uh, it would also include the amount that uh, it uh, would owe to the PBGC under the distress termination. Great. Uh, and just one ad additional point there. The statutory lien is triggered on any missed minimum contributions exceeding $1 million. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty low 
low bar. So then if, if the PBGC were to assert a lien, uh, a lien on what exactly? So this will be a lien on all assets of the controlled group. And in, in controlled group is a, you know, air quotes defined term? It's a defined term. Uh, think of it as uh, entities with at least 80% common ownership. So basically, in practice, this, this means all of the subsidiaries of uh, McClatchy and PBGC would be entitled to a lien uh, over the assets of those subsidiaries. Now, in McClatchy's case, it's actually unclear whether this statutory lien would give the PBGC any extra leverage. Um, if you look at McClatchy's current capital structure, they have about 270 million of first lien obligations and about 425 million of second liens. Uh, we think those liens cover substantially all assets of McClatchy. Um, there are some non-guarantors that we've been able to find that would likely fall into the control group, but we don't we don't think those are very significant. Um, so if those liens are properly perfected, uh, they should rank senior to uh, whatever statutory lien PBGC is able to assert, because when it comes to liens, unless stated otherwise, it's first in time, first in line. Um, but you know, I guess uh, the big takeaway for other cases uh, where where you know big mispayments or a potential out of court distress termination is a real possibility is to uh, look for non guarantor subsidiaries uh, with unencumbered assets that would still fall within the control group. It's the classic prior properly perfected say that ten times fast with the uh, with the liens um, great thanks thanks for giving us not not only uh, the McClatchy specific view but also that uh, that takeaway on you know maybe where to, to look around the edges for this issue in other cases up next fellow distressed debt legal analyst Kevin Eckhart is here to discuss the PBGC's involvement in Sears both pre and post petition another uh, pre-petition situation to compare and contrast with McClatchy welcome Kevin thanks Sean yeah so it's a really very interesting situation in Sears that we covered extensively on the covenants and on the uh, the America side going back to 2015 um, it, it all started in March 2016 so more than two years before the October 2018 bankruptcy was filed when Sears and the PBGC agreed to a pension plan protection and forbearance agreement uh, under this agreement which I call the PPP FA, and I'll try to avoid saying that too many times. <laughs> the PBG says the PBGC, the PPPFA, the, the PBGC agreed to forbear from initiating any involuntary termination of the pension plan pursuant to ERISA section 4042. As you mentioned earlier, um, voluntary termination prior to a bankruptcy would give rise to a secured claim on all of the control group assets. So to avoid that involuntary termination, Sears agreed to, quote, continue to protect or ring fence pursuant to customary covenants, the assets of certain special purpose subsidiaries holding real estate and intellectual property assets. Uh, the intellectual property assets uh, were essentially the Kenmore, Craftsman, and Die Hard brands, and those were held by a bankruptcy remote hold co called KCD. The ring fenced real estate, what they called the Remic, R-E-M-I-C, real estate, uh, 125 stores was also held by a bankruptcy remote SPE. 
The PPPFA did not give the PBGC immediate liens on these assets because they were also used to secure obligations under a securitization facility that was used to fund the Sears Re reinsurance subsidiary. Instead, Sears gave the PBGC a springing lien on the ring-fenced assets, which would arise uh, upon the failure to make required contributions to the company's pension plan, prohibited transfers of ownership interests in the ring-fenced subsidiaries, the KCD and the real estate entities, termination events with respect to the plan, and bankruptcy events with respect to the company or certain of its material subsidiaries. Um, so basically that that means that PBGC was not a secured creditor during this period before Sears bankruptcy. And that's important when you consider um, the, the out of the ordinary transactions that followed and the outsized importance that PBGC had in Sears pre-restructuring attempts to, to rescue itself. Um, uh, the, the lien, again, was never triggered because there were defaults under those Sears re-obligations. So even after the bankruptcy, PBGC ended up as an unsecured party. Following the PPPFA, in March 2017, Sears sold the Craftsman intellectual property to Black & Decker. Of course, that had been ring-fenced. Um, in order to get the PBGC to agree to this sale, um, something that would have probably been unnecessary had Sears filed for bankruptcy and sold the Craftsman assets through a 363 sale, uh, Lambert gave the PBGC a lien on a $250 million payment that was due three years after the sale and 15 years worth of royalties flowing from Black & Decker to Craftsman um, to secure plan contributions. So you can see the pattern here continues. Lampert and Sears consistently gave the PBGC more than it would have been entitled to um, had a bankruptcy been filed and these assets been disposed of or the company restructured in bankruptcy. In May 2017, Lampert told the Chicago Tribune that honoring all of Sears' pension obligations had been, quote, very, very hard to afford. Um, and the total amount that Reorg calculated at the time was about $4 billion between 2005 and 2017. Of course, Lampert kept doing this, even though, um, like I've mentioned, in bankruptcy, the PBGC would probably have been left with unsecured claims and not had these kind of veto rights over asset uh, asset sales and restructuring efforts. In November 20, 2017, the PPPFA was amended again to release real estate from the ring fence so it could be used to secure a financing facility. Uh, again, something that that Sears could have done without PBGC's consent if it were taking on the loan um, under Section 364 um, in a bankruptcy case. Um, Sears agreed in that transaction to make $407 million in plan contributions, including a, a large escrow that was largely still there when the case was filed, using funding from that facility. So again, the PBGC is getting paid um, massive amounts for its, its unsecured liabilities. In an August 2018 Covenant story, we touched on the effect of these maneuvers um, and concluded that, quote, asset transfers and asset distributions covenants under Sears' PBGC agreement likely restrict the subsidiary that owns Kenmore, one of the valuable brands that was still around, from selling IP related to the Kenmore brand. We also noted that the PBGC may have significant negotiating leverage with respect to Sears' ongoing capital structure strategies, uh, and that proved to be the case when the bankruptcy was filed in October 2018. At that time, the PBGC asserted claims for more than $1.5 billion uh, for funding shortfalls in the pension plans. Um, they didn't have 
massive uh, contribution claims, which which you've distinguished earlier, because the contributions had been made through all of these various transactions. Um, those claims were also against controlling group entities that had unencumbered assets, as you discussed with Anton. So it gave the PBGC a, a very strong structural position in the bankruptcy case, even though, again, it never had any liens. Those springing liens that it was granted under the PPPFA never actually sprung. Uh, and this put the PBGC in the position to insist in Sears' bankruptcy plan on an $80 million distribution priority and to, uh, to use an objection to the proposed sale to Lampert's Transform Hold Co. to obtain that and other concessions in the bankruptcy plan, which became very problematic in the confirmation process. Uh, but PBGC ended up with its settlement and ended up making out very well in this case due largely to uh, the company's willingness to deal with it to avoid uh, missing plan payments and termination in a bankruptcy case prior to the, the bankruptcy case actually being filed. Thanks, Kevin. That was uh, comprehensive. So is is Sears the exception to the rule when it comes to outcomes for the PBGC? You know, how how typical or how, uh, you know, precedential is, is this if you're looking at a situation in the future? Yeah, I'd say it's very unusual, um, if, if, which was probably obvious from my tone and was, was clear from our stories. It, it was a situation where the principal of a, of a company had the freedom, and I'm talking about Lampert, of course, had the freedom to favor the PBGC and pension plan contributions and, and to create structures that benefited the PBGC without interference from other shareholders or really even from other lenders. Uh, he didn't have anyone pressing him and saying, you should really be filing for bankruptcy in order to avoid a, an involuntary termination of the plan and a huge lien rather than agreeing to provide uh, collateral and continue to grant consent rights to the PBGC over subsequent restructuring transactions. Uh, Lampard made that clear in his interview uh, with the Tribune and in other media statements that it was very important to him to keep the plan in place and to protect retirees. Um, and this was an unusual case where he had the freedom to do that. So it's it's probably not a very um, precedential case for, for other situations in that way. Yeah, I, I guess that kind of, you know, leads to one potential takeaway from McClatchy and, and Sears. If you're in a situation where you think uh, there's a, a controlling equity holder, old equity holder, who's incentivized to really maximize the the time value of their option on the business before filing. If you know someone trying to avoid filing for as long as possible, you might be more likely to see some funkier variations on the more common fact patterns in, in case dynamics that uh, we we see in the in the more run of the mill um, pension liability cases. Right. It really goes to the fact that the the possibility of pre-petition termination giving rise to a lien for these billions of dollars in underfunded liabilities is such a, a nuclear option that in most companies that's going to force a filing. They're just not going to let the company get to the point where it gets terminated pre-petition. And if you have someone who can sort of string that along and wants to do that and has the freedom and covenants from its lenders, um, that could be a situation you might see this happen again. In. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for walking us through that one. Okay, we're going to shift from pre-petition considerations to look at a variety of issues in the Chapter 11 context. First up, financial analyst Krishan Suthashana is here to discuss Dean Foods. Welcome, Krishan. Very nice to be here. 
So Krishan, there are two big preliminary issues to cover today in the Dean Foods case. Uh, one claims arising from multi-employer pension plans or MEPS and two, how the unsecured claims pool might shake out in this case, given that the company's tradable debt is primarily unsecured bonds, which could be diluted by unsecured pension-related claims. And then once those are out of the way, we can discuss what might happen next in this situation. So, Krishan, could you start us off with a brief overview of Dean Foods? What does the company do? What's been going on? And what have they said about potential pension liabilities? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Dean is a leading processor and direct-to-store distributor of fresh fluid milk and other dairy products in the U.S. Um, In 2018, it had about $7.8 billion of net sales and operated 58 manufacturing facilities across 29 states as of the end of last year. Um, but recently it's been you know, hampered by rising raw milk input costs and severe customer losses. Um, and over the last few years, um, there's been waning demand for fluid milk and traditional milk. Um, and as a result, Dean's operating performance has steadily declined um, before worsening in the last few quarters. Um, so Dean ended up filing for Chapter 11 protection on November 12th. Um, and one of the big reasons why it filed, as cited in his first day declaration um, of CFO Gary Rolfs, was that Dean had potential contingent withdrawal liabilities related to certain multi-employer pension plans to which it contributes. And these significantly impaired Dean's ability to pursue any strategic transactions with third parties outside of a bankruptcy proceeding. That sounds about right. Thanks for that overview. So let's also uh, just for a minute talk about multi-employer pension plans. What is a MEP and how is it different from a single employer pension so plan? So a single employer plan uh, is organized around one company in which the plan sponsor is the company itself. And the participants in the plan are just the employees of the company um, that choose to participate. and. The company is responsible for funding the plan. Pretty simple. Exactly. Um, a multi-employer pension plan, um, they're organized around employees from multiple employers, and the participants are typically unionized. The plan sponsor is a board of trustees that comprises representatives from management as well as plan participants from, from various employers. And one key consideration for MEPS is that if an employer voluntarily or involuntarily withdraws from the plan, it typically has to pay a withdrawal payment equal to its share of the plan's underfunded liability, if that plan is in fact underfunded. However, as we'll get into more detail on later, um, not these payments are not always made in full or not always made in full at one time. Um, And as a result, the remaining active participants are left holding the bag, per se, as this and this impact is magnified um, as the plan's underfunded status grows. The point there being that you have the the same number of beneficiaries and benefit payments due, but now a lower number of contributing employers, presumably contributing fewer dollars to, to cover those benefits. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so I guess one, one other quick point to bring up is the idea of withdrawal liability is, is also supposed to be, you know, you're 
an employer is supposed to be disincentivized from withdrawing. So there, there can be a, a, a punitive component of that just beyond the, the pure, uh, you know, allocation of an underfunded amount. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Sean. Um, so now switching back to Dean, um, according to its 10K for 2018, Dean contributes to several MEPs, uh, including the Western Conference of Teamsters Pension Plan, the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store International Union, the Industry Pension Fund, Dairy Fund, Dairy Industry Union Pension Plan for Philadelphia vicinity, and the Central States Southeast and Southwest Areas Pension Plan. Uh, the plan of note here is the, is the central state's plan, and in this petition, Dean indicated a contingent, unliquidated claim of $722 million related to the central state's plan. In the first day declaration, Dean indicated that the central state's potential withdrawal liability of over $700 million was by far the most significant as it pertains to Dean's potential MEP liabilities. Um, and as we've touched on before, the declaration added that these liabilities significantly impaired Dean's ability to consummate a, a transaction outside of a bankruptcy proceeding. So now switching over to um, the status of the central states plan, um, according to its form 5500 filing, um, which can be found you know, publicly, um, as of January 1st, 2019, the plan was about 25% funded, and it had an underfunded liability of about $39.8 billion. Uh, in 2018, Dean made $9.5 million of contributions to the plan, representing about 1.6% of the total central states plan's employer contributions during the year. And that $9.5 million was cash or any other forms of consideration? Okay, great. Uh, and and again, just a you know a, a pointer. Withdrawal liability is just a contingent liability until the company actually withdraws from the plan. Uh, so, Krishan, how do these obligations or you know these contingent for the moment liabilities? How might they impact recoveries in a bankruptcy? Yeah. So so Dean's funded debt. Um, consists of a $425 million dip facility, $425 million AR facility, and $700 million of senior unsecured notes. But when you add in these $722 million of potential contingent liabilities related to the central state's MEP, other potential MEP liabilities, um, Dean's single employer pension liability and other post-employment retirement benefits obligations, the unsecured pool grows to over $1.5 billion, which essentially halves the unsecured note holder's share of the unsecured claims pool. And then further, when you add other balance sheet liabilities and potential operating lease obligations, the unsecured pool grows to well over $2 billion, which further reduces the note holder's share of the unsecured claims pool to below a third. So because there's, if, if those notes were secured, we wouldn't have these issues. But that, you know, that sounds like it potentially could be a, a very large dilution um, in the unsecured claims pool. Yes, definitely. And I think as you've touched on before earlier in the podcast, um, yeah, the, these MEP liability claims uh, will be unsecured 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah, and once once we're in the the bankruptcy, that's that's sort of the the general rule. Uh, another point to note: the central states plan and the PBGC are both on the official committee of unsecured creditors in the Dean Foods cases, so they have a, a front row seat to negotiate on behalf of well, in a in a duty to negotiate on behalf of all unsecured creditors. So. Given these issues, let's turn to what options are available in bankruptcy. Krishan, what can you tell us about any disclosures or statements Dean Foods has made about how it's looking at its restructuring? Yeah, sure. So um, we'll we'll turn back to pre-petition here. Um, Dean retained Evercore in February um, of this year to assist with an evaluation of strategic alternatives. Um, But as we've touched on, uh, driven by the potential contingent MEP liabilities, Dean was unable to consummate a transaction. And as a result, um, prior to the petition date, uh, Dean engaged in advanced discussions, um, their words, uh, with Dairy Farmers of America um, about a potential role as a stocking horse bidder to purchase the company through substantially all assets of the company through Section 363. Um, DFA um, is a longtime commercial partner of Dean. Uh, it accounted for about 60% of Dean's milk supply um, in 2018, and it accounts and Dean in turn accounts for about 20% of DFA's milk sales. Um, so definitely would be a, v- a vertical integration play there. Um, now, Dean plans to continue its 363 sale marketing process um, and simultaneously explore standalone restructuring um, during the bankruptcy process. The old dual track. From a legacy liability standpoint, the attraction to a potential third-party purchaser of a Section 363 sale would, have, of course, be the ability to acquire assets free and clear of uh, such legacy liabilities. On the balance sheet restructuring front, exciting news at the second day hearing on Friday, December 20th from the Paul Weiss represented ad hoc group holding uh, just under half of the unsecured notes up from a third of the notes at the beginning of the chapter 11 cases. Uh, Council stated that the, uh, the group retained Alex partners after the first day hearing to create an outside business plan, not simply rely on management projections. Council said that this uh, review had um, solidified the the group's position that there's a, there is a legitimate you know viable basis for it a standalone restructuring, uh, and that currently the group was in the process of entering into NDAs to negotiate a, a plan with the debtors, um, trying to get something together by early 2020 February 2020, and stated that the the group was prepared to put forth, quote, hundreds of millions of dollars of new debt and equity commitments. So a, a balance sheet restructuring would create some interesting variations on the unsecured claims pool dilution we discussed just a minute ago. This is a great example of why you need to think through all the potential process variations and, and not get fixated on a headline number. Um, you know, if here, for instance, right, if you're avoid, if, if you're able to avoid triggering withdrawal liability if that contingent claim just does not crystallize, uh, you know, say by negotiating concessions with the, the Teamsters about your 
contribution rates to the, the central states plan, um, you know, maybe the 1113, 1114 process at a, at a later point, you could, um, you know, by by negotiations and in, in settlement, um, avoid that, you know, potential hypothetical claims dilution. And on the renegotiation point of, of course, there's nothing stopping a, a buyer in a 363 sale from, you know, also trying to negotiate similar concessions uh, from the union going forward if they were going to uh, maintain that or attempt to maintain that workforce. Um, and so w- with that in mind, one interesting comparison here as it pertains to the central states plan uh, is Jack Cooper Enterprises, which it was a car haul and logistics services company that filed for Chapter 11 in early August. Um, according to court filings during the case, uh, central states held an unsecured withdrawal liability claim in excess of $2 billion uh, against Jack Cooper. And, and it's really interesting here to note that you know, Jack Cooper's um, 10K for the 2016 year, um, it indicated that it had a withdrawal liability exposure of about $1.08 billion um, related to the central states plan. And this just shows um, how much the withdrawal, how the withdrawal liability has doubled uh, for, for Jack Cooper over the last few years, uh, which is a pretty significant um, increase. Yeah, uh, it's, it's pretty drastic to, you know, to have that estimate. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, that's, that's pretty shocking. Um, and I guess just as a frame of reference for, for Jack Cooper, uh, it contributed about $35 million, um, in 2016, again, cash contributions, um, which represented about 5.8% of total central states plans contributions during the year. Um, as we touched on earlier, Dean, you know, contributed about one and a half percent um, of total employer contribution to the central states plan. So Jack Cooper was definitely uh, contributing way more than than Dean to this plan. Um, and so so going to the Jack Cooper case, um, Jack Cooper filed in, in early August with the stocking horse bidder, uh, Solus. Yes, so, so Solus was the, the only bidder when they had uh, held an auction, and ultimately the judge approved sale to Solus in, in early October. Um, as part of this case, uh, there was a pension plan agreement as it pertains to the central states plan, whereby the new Jack Cooper um, would participate in the central states uh, pension plan as a new employer at reduced pension contribution rates um, compared with the prior plan. And they also would not be on the hook for any of that, you know, legacy liability of the of the debtor. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for pointing that out. That's a that's a, a great, interesting comp. Nice to have, you know, a, a situation recent with the same entity. Uh, you know, maybe some different facts in that case, but nonetheless, nice to have something to kind of, you know, reference. So thanks for Sean, uh, for walking through that one. And I think next we are on to Cole. For last case summary, we're turning to Murray Energy. Joining us from Los Angeles is financial analyst, Mark Gardner, Mr. 70 degrees and ocean breeze, LA Mark. Welcome. Thanks, John. So Mark, could you just give us to, to start off a, a quick description? What does Murray Energy do? Anything 
uh, pertinent about their assets or operations? Yeah, sure. So Marine Energy is a Ohio-based coal company that filed for bankruptcy on October 29th. Uh, the debtor entities included in the cases are all of the company's main operating subsidiaries, which operate mining complexes located in Kentucky, Ohio, Utah, and West Virginia, plus Columbia. Murray's unrestricted subsidiaries, including Murray Metallurgical Coal Holdings, uh, which holds their MEC coal mine, purchased out of a mission called Bankruptcy this April, and Foresight Energy and its, its subsidiaries are not a part of the Chapter 11 case. Um, the company attributed its bankruptcy filing to the rapid, rapidly deteriorating industry conditions in thermal coal markets, both domestically and internationally, as well as the company's mounting debt and legacy liability expenses, which have become too heavy of a burden to sustain under current industry conditions. Um, excluding four site-related operations, Murray's operations generated approximately $2.5 billion in revenue related to coal sales and $542 million in EBITDA in 2018. As of the petition date, the debtors said they had approximately $2.7 billion in funded debt and over $8 billion in actual or potential legacy liability obligations under various pension and benefit plans. Thanks for that overview. So on this over $8 billion in, quote, actual or potential, unquote, legacy liability obligations, has the company said anything more granular about what those, uh, you know, what the, what the various claims that make that aggregate number are? Yes, they have, Sean. So the, the debt has actually uh, stated that they contribute to three multi-employer retirement plans uh, under their CBA obligations, uh, which the largest that they contribute to or consist of is the 1974 pension plan, which provides benefits to 87,000 retired minors and surviving spouses, for which Murray is the last major employer funding 97% of total contributions. Um, If Murray Energy withdraws from the pension plan, the withdrawal liability could be $6.4 billion or more uh, with annual estimated payments of approximately $32 million to $35 million in perpetuity. Um, the debtors also are obligated to fund other post-employment benefits, uh, which stem from the Coal Act and the Black Lung Act um, and the CDA, and their total unfunded liability is approximately $1.9 billion related to those. Thanks. Yeah, the 1974 plan that you mentioned is is interesting. Uh, Murray, I mean, making 97% of the the contributions is is just a, a massive number. Uh, I think the company has also disclosed in the first day deck that on top of the numbers you just cited, there's also the potential for an additional $2 billion of, quote, mass withdrawal liability. And that's essentially if the 1974 plan which is currently only 38% funded if every em- remaining employer were to withdraw and th- that plan was to uh, you know go go defunct the uh, you know Murray would potentially have even even more 2 billion dollars more of you know hypothetical potentially assessed withdrawal liability so that's you know a nice a nice big headline number to kick the proceedings off 
Yeah. So in, in certain cases, receiving the 1113 or 1114 order to reject uh, collective bargaining agreements and, re and or retiree benefits is included as a milestone in the RSA or the DIP credit agreement, such as in Murray's bankruptcy case. Um, although it's common to include this order, it has not always been the case right. in prior coal bankruptcy. All right. So next, let's chat about, this has come up a couple times during the podcast already, but the Section 1113 and 1114 process, uh, can you give us any sort of you know, comments about um, common patterns or how this plays out in coal bankruptcies? Yeah. So in, in certain cases, receiving the 1113 or 1114 order to reject uh, collective bargaining agreements and retiree benefits is included as a milestone in the RSA or the DIP credit agreement, such as in Murray's bankruptcy case. Um, although it's common to include this order, it is not always in the case in prior coal bankruptcy cases. A couple good recent examples of this are the Westmoreland coal and Mission coal cases, uh, both filed uh, approximately a year before Murray in 2018. Um, and you can look at milestones, 1113, 1114 process milestones in, in RSAs, well, RSA in Westmoreland, and then uh, similar milestones in dip orders in both of those cases. And, and it's interesting. So last week, uh, Murray's second day hearing, the dip was approved on a final basis, and they had extended pursuant uh, agreements with various interested parties, their milestones to file an 1113-1114 motion out to February 26th and to obtain an order if a, a motion is filed by April 10th. Interesting to compare that to Westmoreland where the case was filed similar time of year, early October 2018, uh, an RSA initially anticipated um, an 1113, 1114 motion filing a month after filing the bankruptcy cases, but that wound up, the debtors didn't actually file an 1113, 1114 motion until mid-January and got a decision in order um, a month later. Similar with Mission Coal, case filed in mid-October 2018, 1113, 1114 motion wasn't actually filed until the end of January, and they received uh, a decision permitting them to uh, reject their collective bargaining agreement and, and modify retiree obligations on March 1st. So relative to these two recent cases that I, I think are pretty good precedents, it looks like the Murray milestones are fairly conservative. They have a little bit more of a, a time buffer. Another interesting point is that both of the prior cases, Westmoreland and Mission Coal, uh, Kirkland was debtor's counsel. So you have obviously a, a lot of institutional knowledge now is in, in Murray, um, trying to do essentially the same set of moves. Um, and then the, the tension, because of, of course, the United Mine Workers of America, the major union in these, these coal cases, uh, you know, of course, they don't want benefits to be modified or collective bargaining agreements rejected. Um, you know, obviously they are, they're not in favor of these 1113, 1114 motions. 
Um, but I think the the best way to sum up this, you know, these competing points is actually just from reading from the order or the the decision in the Mission Coal case is permitting the debtors to reject their collective bargaining agreement. Uh, Judge Tamara Mitchell said the following. It appears to the court that this sale of the mines is necessary to preserve jobs and avoids value-destructive litigation, liquidation, excuse me, for all creditors. And in order to consummate a sale, it is necessary that the debtors receive authority to reject and modify their CBAs and other retiree benefits. Even though this court fully appreciates the enormous potential hardship on many, the court must follow the law and, in doing so, must decide what is best for all creditors and parties, including union and non-union employees, vendors, administrative expense claimants in the community. While the UMWA appears willing to risk any sale by insisting that the court deny the Section 1113-1114 motion, the court is not in a position to do so. This court must assume the terms of the proposed bids. There was a, um, a bid for Mission Coal's assets that uh, was specifically conditioned on uh, obtaining a, a favorable outcome in, in this uh, motion process. Uh, well, the proposed bids are firm, and that if any condition is not met, there will be no sale. This court finds that maintaining the coal operations is a going concern, keeping the mines open, offering future job opportunities, and continuing to be a productive member of the business community all require this court to overrule the UMWA and the UMWA funds objections. So that's that's just a, a great summary of the dynamics in these cases and you know, the debtors sort of saying uh, there's no other viable alternative here. Uh, you know, we really do, this, this relief is, is necessary. Um, and then in Mission Coal, Mark, could you give us a sense of the estimated liabilities that uh, this 1113-1114 order allowed the debtors to um, leave behind? Yes, the uh, the 1974 pension plan estimated the withdrawal liabilities of about 977 million. Great, that's yeah, that's you know 977 down to nada. Uh, Mark, are there any other interesting coal cases you think we should discuss? Uh, yes, uh, another one that's a good example where the disputed pension and benefit liabilities recovered a much smaller amount was uh, Alpha Natural Resources. The United Mine Workers of America asserted holding unsecured claims of at least $1.7 billion, uh, consisting of pension obligation claims and other benefit claims, while the company had said it accumulated unfunded obligations to the plans of $220 million, uh, post-employment medical benefit obligations of $1 billion, and a potential withdrawal liability of $607 million under the 1974 pension plan. So uh, after negotiations, a uh, settlement was reached. Uh, the debtors provided the 1974 pension plan and allowed $985 million uh, general unsecured claims uh, specific to uh, that bankruptcy case. And uh, under Office Chapter 11 plan, the, the holders of that specific uh, type of general unsecured claim um, received 5% of new co-common stock, certain new co-seven-year warrants, 
reorganized uh, Alpha Natural Resources contingent revenue payment, uh, less than less $5 million, uh, 100% of Reorg Co. common stock, in, in addition to 70% of the shares of reorganized Opto common stock, uh, and uh, contingent reserve price at the sell proceeds. Um, so all in, the, the settlement uh, allows the pension plan to receive cash payment of $10 million, uh, $3 million of that paid up front with the remainder in installments, and the UMWA plan sold that auction its claim, uh, its general secure claim and equity rights for $64.5 million. Great. Thanks. So that was all... Those the recoveries you were just talking about again. That it was the the settlement or the result after what an initial asserted claim of 1.7 billion. Right, consisting of the uh, pension obligations and other benefit claims. Great. Yeah, another another good example of you know how uh, how these large headline numbers can uh, can shrink. There's there's actually to that point a great chart. In uh, congressional testimony given earlier this year um, by the executive director of the UMWA Health and Retirement Funds to the House of Representatives Subcommittee on Energy and Mineral Resources, the, the report sort of goes over the, uh, the variety of um, issues with the 1974 pension plan, specifically calling out the uh, Patriot Coal's 2015 bankruptcy, the Walter Resources bankruptcy in 2015, Alpha, and then Mission Coal. Um, and there's a, there's a chart showing that over $4.2 billion in withdrawal liability um, that was assessed on uh, 1974 pension plan contributors that filed for bankruptcy uh, was reduced to $160.5 million to be collected. So again, um, the, the headline numbers tend to, tend to drop pretty far in these cases. So Mark does, you know, talking, talking about the settlement construct in, in alpha, uh, you know, do these issues come up in cold cases and any context other than someone sort of, you know, kicking off the 11-13, 11-14 negotiation process? So Peabody is an interesting case uh, because Peabody did not go through the 11-13, 11-14 process to reject pension claims because they had spun off its related pension obligations to Patriot Coal, uh, or so it thought. The 1974 pension plan filed a proof of claim against Peabody in its bankruptcy cases in uh, early 2016, uh, $643 million relating to its withdrawal liability, even after its spinoff of Patriot Coal in 2007. Um, the pension plan alleged uh, the Peabody debtors uh, were responsible for Patriot, Patriot Coal's complete secession of its obligation to contribute to the 1974 pension plan. Uh, because the, de- the debtors structured the spin-off with the principal purpose of evading or avoiding the pension withdrawal liability. Uh, so through negotiations, the pension plan was able to receive $75 million uh, to be paid over four years uh, in a settlement that was approved along with the debtors' plan. 
Um, however, you know, coal pension plan settlements don't need to be included uh, within the debtor's bankruptcy plan. Thanks for that example. Uh, yeah, that's sort of an, an interesting off the off the beaten path one. So one uh, one slight correction in a uh, in the context of of looking ahead. So back to Murray, um, the extended deadline for entry in of 11-13, order, um, I said earlier on the podcast was April 10th. It's actually May 14th. Uh, so the, the debtors said at their second day hearing that on December 9th, they made what they think was a, a qualifying section 1113 14 uh, proposal to the United Mine Workers of America. Um, so presumably they will be in, in further negotiations. Council Debtors Council said that uh, they'd had a, a, quote, very cordial meeting earlier in December with the UMWA. But the, uh, the next sort of event to look for will be whether the debtors file an 1113-1114 motion by the milestone of February 26th. And then there's also a, a bid deadline to see if anyone comes in to top the stocking horse credit bid from the company's super priority lenders on March 30th. Recently on the negotiation front, uh, Judge Hoffman entered an order directing the U.S. trustee to appoint an official committee of retired employees um, so that the, the debtors can negotiate with with that committee as the authorized representative of um, some of the company's statutory liability uh, retirees coal act obligations uh, so there's there's a lot to uh, a lot to come in Murray but looking at how this has played out in you know a few prior cases um, it, it seems like one of the the few industries or areas where there are a, a decent number of comps and you can you can get a, a little bit of a, a sense of how this process may play out. So thank you, Mark, for walking through the name with us. And I think that does it for um, this hopefully not too massive uh, pension and retiree benefits um, overview. And thank you, listener, for tuning into another Reorg Weekly Review. And of course, thank you for spending each and every Sunday with us throughout 2019. As always, find all of our podcasts on the Reorg Media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. We will be off next week, wishing all of you and yours a very happy and healthy new year. This has been the week and year in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelting.